Thank you for choosing this podcast. This is a podcast about Dr. Shirley Bryce Heath's ethnographic work conducted in the Piedmont region of the Carolinas in the United States. Piedmont is the name given to the region by outsiders. Piedmont. Those who have familiarity with it or live there or were raised there never use the word when they speak of the region. P like Papa, I like India, E like Echo, D like Delta, M like Mike, O like Oscar, N like November, T like Tango is how it's spelled. I just used the aviation phonetic alphabet to spell that for you because there used to be a Piedmont Airlines that operated from 1948 to 1989 that serviced the region. So since Shirley Bryce Heath's work is devoted to language and life, and since ethnographic work requires knowledge of culture, people, and where they come from, I think this is a proper beginning to start with some background knowledge about the region. Piedmont comes from the French term for the same physical region, literally meaning foothill, meaning at the foot of the mountains. Shirley Bryce Heath, author of Ways with Words, Language, Life, and Work in Communities and Classrooms, was born in Virginia and raised in Western North Carolina. She conducted research with two groups of people. This podcast discusses how her research with these two groups of people touches upon how they raise their children and establish values in a mill community. The two groups of people who make up this community reside only a few miles from each other. They reside in the neighboring towns of Roadville and Tracton. Dr. Bryce Heath states in the book's prologue that the audience for whom she wrote this book determined the dual nature of the book. She states, and I quote, the narrative here tells the story of how children of two culturally different communities in the Piedmont Carolinas of the United States came to use language and how their teachers learned to understand their ways and to bring these ways into the classrooms. Part one, ethnographer learning, the Piedmont, textile mills and times of change. Let's understand who inhabits the region and how their ancestors came to be there. It was easier to settle into the Piedmont rather than to pass through it. The red clay and swift rivers discouraged merchants. After rains, the roads became muddy mires that trapped wagons and horses like Venus flytraps in trap flies. In the 18th century, barges loaded with goods that came in from the coastal port of Charleston, South Carolina, were manned by slaves from Africa. These slaves had to remove the goods from the barges for distribution. After 1800, white settlers came down from the middle colonies, and Virginia and black and white settlers came up from the coastal plain and the tidal region. A melange of European immigrants made their way to this back country to establish schools, churches, and as Dr. Bryce Heath describes it, to live decently with hard work. As part of the ethnographer learning, it is important to note that textile mills supplied what homemakers did not. The Civil War brought about times of change. These times of change are directly related to cotton production. Soils became deplenished due to intensive cultivation of cotton. Crop lands were devastated by war and the textile manufacturing industry pushed to bring the mills to the cotton. Cotton manufacture was rooted solidly in the Piedmont. New cotton mills, abundant white labor, flourished. 
communities became ventures in the cotton mills, citizens financing. There was common labor. Post-Civil War white families had no land. They swapped their tenant farmer roles for mill village life. What did this mean for post-Civil War blacks who were now free, at least according to the Emancipation Proclamation? Blacks in the Civil War, post-Civil War South, settled as tenant farmers on farms that still functioned as farms after the war. Those who were able to do so purchased small plots of land. However, just as the virtual shackles of slavery bound them to the plantations, blacks were still bound to the land because only a few mills hired blacks and they were only hired in janitorial roles. Now we have the 20th century, which ushers in the ideology of the times, mills, places to work, communities built by and for the people, places to live, founding families, a class system, mill workers, laborers, and community as a cooperating unit, churches, businesses, schools. Compulsory school attendance became law in 1907 for North Carolina, and a few years later in 1915 for South Carolina. Schools were designated to teach mill children everything from manners to morals. School teachers became preachers for the culture of the townspeople. Dr. Bryce Heath informs us that mill people were scornful of school. This was to the dislike of the townspeople. In 1920, newspaper circulation increased in the Piedmont. There were new pushes for education and that cotton-eating menace from Mexico, known as the Boll Weevil, forced many a white family who was dependent on cotton to give it up and move to the mill village. Many blacks moved north. Those blacks who stayed, just as I said before, were tied to the land. Some did finish school. Black and white communities in the decades of the 60s and 70s were tied to the textile mills in different ways. They were caught between family and school, community and classroom, and the urge to be on the rise. Roadville and Tracton, the two communities where Dr. Price Heath conducted her ethnographic research, are located in the Piedmont Carolinas. The two communities had children and believed that learning language and hearing lessons about doing right and understanding how to do right were qualities that would make them better citizens. As Bryce Heath writes, language, schooling, and learning are critically linked to the ways one gets on at home, at school, and work. Part two, getting on in two communities. Roadville, a sleepy village mill village population of 50,000, a white working class community that was tightly knit, that was composed of four generations of mill workers. Roadville houses were look-alike houses. They were mill houses. Children walked three miles to school and attended school only four months a year. The parents did not consider mill work for their children. Mill life was mixed with various reflections. Some thought it as a good beginning and too risky because you might not get a full day work. Some said they wanted to do better. 
one participant is recorded by Shirley Bryce Heath in her transcript text as stating when the niggers now the blacks you know started coming in I knew they won't for me I won't ever gonna work for no nigger my granddaddy roll over his grave if I did blacks taking up the jobs now the role of schooling was depended on and resented by some whose hopes were not fulfilled with school they blamed teachers they blamed administrators they blamed blacks and they blamed the federal government Tracton was an all-black neighborhood of run-down houses with no front yards, houses in need of paint. There were eight two-family wooden houses filled with black working-class family members. The Tracton people viewed their stay as temporary. They did for themselves. They spent money on children and furniture. They hoped to move from their run-down neighborhood. They placed a value on having sons because girls, as Dr. Shirley Bryce Heath writes, can get messed up, they can get pregnant. Some Tracton residents moved away to Gateway, a community about six miles away. They moved there as young children in the 50s and 60s. The blacks who moved there made the firm decision that there would be no projects for their children, no housing projects for their children, that there would be decent, decent housing. They despised the notion of welfare. They refused to apply for unemployment. They believed that schooling and success in school is one way out. Both communities believed in getting ahead and believed in the great improvement and betterment of their communities and their families.